0: Welcome again to the Second Wave of Quarantine Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederada.com. Before we get started tonight, I want to apologize for the mishap last week. I absolutely recorded a show and was happy to be back on track after a week that had included a COVID scare and a brutal week at my day job, but technical difficulties meant it didn't make it to air. It's available at the website, Evidence-Based Errata, and also on the podcast feed if you haven't already found it there. Um So hopefully... You're hearing this tonight, and everything is back on track. So let's get started, as always, with talking about COVID. You may have heard that Governor Baker, in his infinite wisdom, has decided to end the mask mandate in Massachusetts. We are now joining California, Connecticut, Delaware, New Jersey, Oregon, New York, and Illinois. In doing so or planning to do so in the near future. Of course, when I first looked at this list, I thought, wow, that's a lot of uh, more blue leaning states. But then I realized that none of the red states had mass mandates to get rid of. Sigh. So is COVID over? Am I being silly still sitting here in my bedroom? Well, if you ask Bill Maher, another noted science expert, he'll say yes. Of course, he'll also tell you that he's still a bit spe- skeptical on the germ theory of disease altogether, or so I've heard. Um, and so I obviously am not really taking advice from people like, uh, Charlie Baker or Bill Maher, who are not science experts and who are absolutely not, uh, working in the best interests of people. Uh, But in either uh, trying to get business back on track, in the case of Governor Baker, in my opinion, and just being a contrarian and asking questions uh, when it comes to Bill Maher. And so my answer is actually backed by the CDC, and that is that we are definitely not out of the woods yet And that the masking, that the easing of mask mandates is premature. And again, you'll note that I am still recording this from my bedroom and not in the studio. The peak of Omicron may be in the past, but because Omicron is so highly contagious, this isn't as impressive as it sounds. The CDC still recommends that people who are fully vaccinated, which means a three-dose regimen, should wear masks indoors in public settings anywhere that has a substantial or high transmission rate. Well, that currently includes 99.1% of all counties in the country having a high transmission rating right at this moment, or at least it was uh, a couple of days ago. And so yeah, 99.1%. So, according to the c d c you should continue to wear a mask when you are indoors, and so, I am very much trying to limit the time that I spend indoors, but some things are you know inevitable. you have to go out and interact with people so um, I stopped in at the local Asian food mart this eve uh yesterday evening, sorry um and was very still very much still wearing my KN95 mask um, and still trying to stay away from people as much as possible. The seven-day rolling average of daily cases was around 240,000, which is just about the level of the peak of the wave that hit in January 2021, and much higher than when Delta hit. Hospitalizations are still relatively high as well, despite the supposedly less severe nature of Omicron due largely to the vast amount of unvaccinated people still uh, inhabiting our country. And um, yeah, it's it's very frustrating. Um, we have talked about the uh, issue with being unvaccinated over and over and over again, Uh, There is no reason not to be vaccinated other than you don't trust science or you think that somehow science has a liberal bias, um, which is utterly incorrect and frankly ridiculous. The seven-day average of hospitalizations was 111,000, with deaths averaging around 2,500 a day which is higher than they've been since this time last year. And we've now exceeded 900,000 deaths and are cruising at breakneck speed towards 1 million deaths. Now, part of the problem is that humans are bad at large numbers. It's really hard to understand what a million is. But if you think about 1 million seconds, for instance, that's over 11 and a half days. The Connecticut River Valley Watershed has around 2 million people living in it. Imagine one out of every two people across the valley just disappearing. Half of the population of the Connecticut River Valley Watershed disappearing. It's a huge number of people. In the last month alone, 67,000 Americans died. That's more than all the deaths reported during the Vietnam War over 10 years or so. In one month, 10 years worth of deaths in a war zone. So yeah, I am not ready to go back to uh, business as usual. Uh, There are still plenty of people in Massachusetts who are unvaccinated Our vaccination rate is high, but it's not anywhere near as high as I would like it to be. And I think that Omicron is still a potential problem. And so I am still trying very hard to avoid being around people and being infected. I do not want to be infected. And so here I am recording this once again, from my bedroom. Now there is some hope on the horizon. And so um, obviously as Omicron continues to infect the unvaccinated and even some of the vaccinated, uh, we will see numbers with immunity that will actually eventually, hopefully, if another hugely different variant doesn't emerge, that will be productive against new surges in the future. But that's a big if because we know that there is potential for reinfection with Omicron and also just there's still the potentiality for a variant that is different enough that it evades the vaccine um, that we have already deployed. And it's just... I'm not willing to to roll those dice right now. It also comes at a steep price. Once again, I've got a fair amount of compassion fatigue at this point, and I think a lot of people do. It's hard to keep being upset about something for hugely long periods of time. But the majority of those people who have passed away may have been May have survived for years or decades longer than they had not, than they did had they not been led astray by misinformation about the vaccine. People of all ages and health statuses have died. We've all seen the stories of people who seemed healthy and vibrant and still succumbed. Um, largely people who were unvaccinated and thought that because they were young and healthy, they didn't need the vaccine. And so, you know, this is, this is so heartbreaking that people are still dying when we have vaccines available. Um, at least in the West, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, and so. It's just really important to think about it every once in a while. I try not to bring it up too often, but families have been torn apart. Children have been orphaned. People are now living with potentially lifelong disabilities due to long COVID symptoms. And that's part of why I've worked really hard to avoid COVID. I don't want potentially lifelong complications. And so I don't want to let my guard down too soon. But again, I am very, very, very conservative when it comes to this sort of thing. I know other people feel like they've had three shots and they wear a mask and they've gone back to mostly doing things the way they did before. Um, You know, I have been in a grocery store occasionally recently um, and it's, been hard for me sometimes. Um, I do still almost have panic attacks when I see people not wearing masks, um, especially since I don't know if they're vaccinated or not. Um, but as I've mentioned before on this show, I have a actual phobia when it comes to infectious diseases. Um, though I'm not sure that that's the right word again, because it's a real thing that can really hurt me. Um, so, um yeah. I'm not advocating that you have to continue to uh scroll yourself away as I have for the most part, but I'm just saying that I personally, as someone with um potential pre-existing conditions, um, at least one or two, um, one I one for certain and you know, questionably a couple more, depending on which ones you want to um consider the most uh important. And so even though I've gotten the vaccine and the booster, I just don't want to risk it. Um, I think that getting out of this pandemic, not having gotten uh, COVID-19 is going to be your absolute best bet at continuing to have um, a good outcome as far as health and not having any chances of complications from having been infected with the virus. But again, uh, things do seem to be working toward a time when we might be able to relax a bit. I just don't think it's today. There is no way we are going to eradicate this virus, Dr. Fauci said in an interview with the Financial Times. But I hope we are looking at a time when we have enough people vaccinated and enough people with protection from previous infections that the COVID restrictions will soon be a thing of the past. Now I I am still very much a supporter of Dr. Fauci though I do think that uh as a political position um he has made some decisions that I've not found particularly exciting um especially when they um when they um decreased the amount of time for quarantine and so um it's interesting to hear his perspective but um, in a White House press briefing on Wednesday, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky, who was also involved in that decision, obviously, reiterated the stance of the CDC as a whole. We certainly understand the need and desire to be flexible, Dr. Walensky noted, and we want to ensure the public health guidance that we're providing meets the moment that we're in. And for that moment, that means maintaining the guidance to mask indoors. We are working on that guidance, she said optimistically. We are working on following the trends for the moment. But she cautioned, our hospitalizations are still high. Our death rates are still high. So as we work toward that new guidance and as we are encouraged by the current trends, we are not there yet. And I think that's a very important statement is that, yes, it's great and wonderful and things are happening. And hopefully we are moving towards a time when COVID becomes endemic and we no longer see it as a pandemic, um, but we're nowhere near that yet. And so circling back to long covid a new study published in Nature Medicine looks at rates of heart-related conditions in patients who had COVID-19. They found that in the following 12 months, those who had been infected by COVID had a higher percentage of heart-related complications, with those having been admitted to, tens- to intensive care having the most, followed by hospital people who are hospitalized having issues also those with less severe disease, even those without prior risk factors and the young. The data looked only at the first year of the pandemic before the rise of the more severe Delta variant and the more infectious Omicron. The study looked at national data from the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs, which is basically the largest uh, hospital um, conglomeration in the country. They compared long-term cardiovascular outcomes of over 150,000 patients who survived infection with SARS-CoV-2 to set to two sets of control patients: one cohort from during the pandemic and another from before the pandemic. And I think this was a really excellent way to do this. It's important because they wanted to not only test against people who um, were having issues at the same time. But it's important to look and see if these kinds of um, heart-related incidences were due to outcomes that were a result of potentially, for instance, delayed or missed medical interventions due to the pandemic in general, or were likely due to the infection itself. So there's an argument that you can make if you just look at people in the same time period of that year, that it could be caused by the fact that because other people were in the hospital for COVID-19, there was a lot less regular kind of checkups going on and interventions. And so they looked at both cohorts before and during. And so they found a consistent pattern across whether or not uh, the group was compared to those from before COVID or during COVID. And so COVID-19 survivors were at higher risk of being diagnosed with heart conditions, including those that led to death. They had a 52% higher risk of stroke, a 72% higher risk of atrial fibrillation, a form of irregular heartbeat, you may have seen the uh commercials for some sort of pharmaceutical uh talking about AFib. Um, oh, don't get me started on commercials <laughs> for pharmaceuticals. Um that's a whole uh three hour rant, probably. <laughs> and a twofold risk of heart inflammation, including myocarditis. So just to be clear, uh I hope that you get this reference, but, uh, Joe Rogan is wrong. Um, now that's a true statement, such a true statement that it barely warrants being said. Um, but there is a fairly famous cliff of him recently claiming, oh, you know, there's a higher risk of myocarditis when you, uh, get the vaccine than there is when you uh, get COVID. And uh, the lovely thing was, is that someone fact-checked him in real time. Um, but just to be clear, Joe Rogan was wrong and generally is wrong, um, in my humble opinion, um, about pretty much everything. Uh, <laughs> I'm Again, that's another two-hour rant about um, how people are, how certain people's voices are amplified and um, about how we allow certain messaging to be um, fairly unchallenged. But anyways, what we're seeing isn't good, said study author Ziad Al-Ali, an assistant professor of medicine at Washington University in a statement from the university itself. COVID-19 can lead to serious cardiovascular complications and death. The heart does not regenerate or easily mend after heart damage. These are diseases that will affect people for a lifetime. And part of this, a big factor, is that long COVID is currently poorly understood and the authors really point out that we don't have any kind of infrastructure built out to deal with this rise in both chronic and acute diseases associated with having been infected with uh, COVID. Because of the chronic nature of these conditions, they will likely have long-lasting consequences for patient and health systems and also have broad implications on economic productivity and life expectancy, Al Ali said, addressing the challenges posed by long COVID will require a much needed, but so far lacking, urgent and coordinated long term global response strategy. Emphasis mine. Um, and so, yeah, um, I think it's very important that we are clear that even if you've recovered from COVID, that isn't necessarily the end of the story. And um, for some people, um, when you read the sort of list of symptoms that people associate with long COVID, some of those might be um sort of the nocebo effect where um people are attributing things that they would have otherwise gotten um if they hadn't been infected with COVID to having been infected with COVID. But a lot of them are um starting to show real clinical evidence that they are directly related to the fact that people were infected with COVID-19 and that the virus really did lifelong potentially um, actual physical damage to their systems that are going to lead to acute health needs, sorry, to chronic health needs um, throughout the rest of their lives. So I think we already talked about Um, The fact that apparently some people who um, were infected now have uh, developed diabetes and um, now we're seeing heart disease and um, one of the other big long COVID um, symptoms is brain fog. And so, yeah, this is, again, another huge reason why I am trying to avoid getting it in the first place. Um, and so of course I am privileged. I, I should acknowledge that absolutely that I am privileged to, um, have a work environment, have a home environment, have the financial stability and the support networks in order to be able to do that, to be able to work from home, to be able to order groceries, pay the extra fee to have someone else, um, you know, package them. And I absolutely feel for the people who have to do that. Um, it's it's very, you know, we do not live in an ideal world um, where any of this is fair or good um, beyond just the fact that it is happening. It is happening in America, in a country that is not equipped for it in any way, shape or form. And um, despite the fact that you know epidemiologists have been warning people for uh, decades that this was going to happen, um, I've been worried about this for decades because I've read um, <laughs> the science and I was absolutely positive this was going to happen sooner rather than later. But um, in the same way that humans are bad at numbers, humans are also bad at forward planning. That's why we can't get a handle on climate change. That's why we don't understand um how our systems are built in order to favor some and not favor others. Because it's hard for us to see the future. It's hard for us to understand um that something that you do today could have consequences five or 10 years down the line. Um and I don't excuse that. I think that humans need to get better at that. Uh, just because you're not naturally inclined to it doesn't mean you can't learn. Um, and so there are obviously people who do, uh, have the ability to think into the future and see that things that we're doing now are going to affect us in the future. Um, and so as a collective, we need to get better at that. And, um, <sighs> It's, it's frustrating, um, but we just have to keep moving. Now, there is good news about the vaccine. Uh, we continue to get good news on the vaccine front. The latest data from the CDC found that boosters are 82% effective at preventing the need for acute or emergency care and 90% effective at preventing hospitalization. So the reason for those numbers, um, is that basically, It's 90% effective at preventing hospitalization, and then um, I presume, I forgot to double check the numbers, but I would presume that it's then 82% effective at preventing the need for acute or emergency care out of those people who who do end up in the hospital. Um, Being fully boosted also means that you're five times less likely to be infected with the Omicron COVID-19 variant than the unvaccinated. And if you are wondering about the advertised Omicron-specific booster, I wouldn't worry too much about it. Moderna's first trials in monkeys actually saw no better protection in uh, for the monkeys with the Omicron-specific vaccine. And it turns out that my studies actually suggest that a variant-specific booster may not be as good at providing broad-spectrum protection um and so basically the reason why the um omicron specific booster didn't seem to do better is that there's actually a mechanism that uh researchers already know about um and that it is once the system once your immune system has been af- um has been exposed to a particular kind of virus um If you then re-expose it to a slightly different version of a very similar virus, it's basically going to say, oh, that's that other virus. And it's just going to keep protecting you against the broad spectrum of the virus and not specifically against the slightly newer version. Because the way the immune system works, it already kind of is saying, well, yeah, I already know about that. Um, because you've already been vaccinated against the original version. Um, and again, it's probably better because that does seem to um, give people a better, broader spectrum uh, protection. Okay, so we are at the halfway mark. So we're going to do some uh, show promos and some PSAs. And we come back, I'm going to give you a quick dose of... uh my, uh, continually teased and yet not yet materialized, uh, (laughs) series on you're not mad at science. You're mad at capitalism. Um, so we're going to talk about Johnson and Johnson for a bit and how, um, yeah, how capitalism is terrible. Um, I hope you do come back for that. Uh, you are listening to evidence-based radio. it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. And we are back. You are listening to evidence-based radio once again. And as advertised, we're going to talk about uh, science and capitalism for a bit. So apparently, according to the New York Times, Johnson & Johnson, which has been producing vaccines used by much of the developing world, decided to switch over the plant in the Dutch city of Leiden, that was producing the crucial drug in order to instead produce experimental doses of a vaccine meant to combat respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV. This vaccine will be tested on older adults in wealthy countries, and even if effective, will not be on the market for several years. The disease does... Indeed, kill an estimated 14,000 older adults in the U.S. each year, but that's a paltry number compared to the deaths caused by COVID-19. Because this vaccine would be a new treatment, whoever gets there first will presumably have a pretty big corner on the market, which again is almost exclusively found in wealthy countries and is estimated by some analysts to potentially be worth $10 billion annually by 2030. All this while J&J has struggled to meet its contractual obligations. Last summer, J&J had projected that they would deliver a billion doses in 2021, but only managed a meager 400 million doses, according to a source. COVAX, the clearinghouse responsible for distributing the vaccine to much of the developing world, has seen much less than was projected to be given to them. J&J said that they had aimed to supply up to 200 million doses to COVAX by the end of the year, but only managed 4 million. We really needed their doses in 2021, and we were counting on them, Dr. Berkeley said of COVAX they didn't deliver so we had to find another dose we had to find other doses to meet the country's needs this also came as a shock to the african union another large customer and though they seem to have been faring better in getting supplies than covax they are also concerned this is not the time to be switching production lines of anything when the lives of people across the developing world hang in the balance said dr Ayode Alakija, I apologize if I mispronounced that, a co-head of the African Union's vaccine delivery program. And while there are more vaccines available now for countries to choose from, the J&J has continued to be a go-to for many countries because of its easy ability to be stored and to be administered. The company was previously caught producing the vaccine in South Africa for export back to Europe. And so, yeah, uh, it's not a good look. And so the company claims that there are other facilities for providing the drug. Unfortunately, none of them has been approved to actually manufacture and supply the drug with issues of quality control and delays in construction. It's a particular interest to me personally that j and J vowed to produce the vaccine as a not-for-profit drug, which means that there is no capitalist or shareholder incentive to keep good on their promises to countries in the developed world. It's almost like putting a price tag on life-saving drugs is highly problematic and backfires even when there isn't a profit motive because the companies will seek to find other ways to line the pockets of their shareholders. While trying to ride a wave of goodwill from having been such humanitarians, the science of vaccines is sound and it has saved countless lives. It is one of the best inventions man has ever created. That is absolutely not in doubt. But the fact that the industry is for profit does nothing but taint that legacy. There is there should be no room for profit motivation when it comes to people's lives and their healthcare. I don't know how we got to this place where we are now, but it is not okay. It is not right that people have to beg for life-saving medicines. We live in a in a world where Everyone could be supplied with things like this, vaccines at least. Not all of the drugs, not everything that's available to us in the West, for instance, because obviously we're willing to pay. But vaccines, we could absolutely pool the resources of nations to make sure that every single person in the world had access to the vaccine we could do that. We just choose not to. Um, And so, yeah, uh capitalism is the issue in a lot of this. It really is what makes everything terrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> it just, it just is. <laughs> All right. So that was depressing, but we're going to turn to something way better now that is This is legitimately awesome and futuristic in the best possible way. Researchers in Switzerland have developed a spinal implant that can allow paralyzed patients to walk with assistance mere hours after it is activated. That's right. People who are paralyzed are able to walk within hours of receiving an implant. As you probably know, the spinal cord, when damaged, rarely is able to be repaired by the body's own mechanisms. The spinal cord is composed in large part of long extensions of nerve cells called axons. The axons allow nerve impulses to traverse long distances to connect your brain to far off parts of your body. It also allows for sensory input to reach the brain. Injuries to the spinal cord that physically sever these axons can lead to permanent deficits. And while many cells have the ability to regrow axons, scar tissue in the very narrow space that the spinal cord flows through in your spine can impede this process. In some cases, the damage may only be partial and the remaining function can be retrained with what's left of the ability to move. But... In other cases, the damage is too severe and it leads to permanent paralysis, that is, without medical intervention. Now, there are several research groups looking at how to eliminate scar tissue and induce regrowth of axons, which obviously is fantastic work, but this research takes a different route altogether, using what is considered an electronic bypass. In its final form this might look like having two implants on either side of the damaged part of the spinal cord that capture and then disseminate the signals back to the con- the connecting nerves in order to allow the system to work as if as it had before just with a bypass connecting the two systems over the part of the spinal cord that is damaged the current work does not achieve that level of autonomy but is extraordinary nonetheless. The version they've developed involves an implant with pre-programmed behaviors, such as the leg movements involved in walking. Years of research have led to a precise map of the specific bundles of nerve fibers in the lower spine where the axons exit the spinal cord and connect with different muscle groups. This means that potentially, you could map all of the different clusters in order to control movement at the finest levels of full function. The researchers studied 27 different individuals living and deceased. They found that there was actually variability in the details of the spine structure, although the size of the bundles was fairly uniform. Using the data obtained, they were able to build a model of the spine and then experiment with electrode location and size in a virtual environment. They eventually developed an implant with 16 individual electrodes that each control a certain bundle of nerves. They then enlisted three volunteers who were unable to use their legs. The volunteers were placed in an MRI while their legs were moved manually. This allowed for the researchers to see the signals sent back toward the brain about their altered tension, which set off activity in the nerve bundles that innervated the muscle. The MRI data allowed the researchers to map which nerve bundles were associated with each individual's muscles. They then wrote a computer model for each of the three individuals. After implantation, the device was tested out to see different potential movements while the volunteer was lying down and then fine-tuned to remove any unwanted movements. The process took about an hour. This is really, we are living in the future stuff. Um, This is like really next generation. This is the kind of stuff that we have wanted to happen. This is the kind of research that is, you know, kind of at the forefront of amazing medical breakthroughs. Um, the ability to be able to help people walk who have been paralyzed. It's just amazing. When I read this, I was just absolutely blown away. And so the same day after that one hour, each patient was able to walk on a treadmill if supported. The implant worked properly and the model was able to generate the correct signals to stimulate the muscles in sequence. Within three days of adjustments, the participants were able to walk around a room with support. They were eventually able to stand unaided and to walk with only a walker or walking frame. Their legs were controlled via the implant in their abdomen, which respond which responds to triggers on the handles of the walker, one volunteer was even able to go up stairs. They were also given programs that allowed them to ride a recumbent bicycle or to paddle a kayak. Fascinatingly, two of the subjects actually regained some ability to exert voluntary muscle control. It seems that there was existing functionality but it was too weakly connected to actually trigger muscle movements but with extended activity from the external source those connections grew and reconnected the brain and muscle. Now this is obviously a pretty darn intensive procedure people with spinal injuries though are often subjected to lengthy interventions that in the end do not end up helping. And so they do years of physical therapy. And a lot of times it doesn't work. You know, there are people who do physical therapy and are absolutely able to eventually walk again. And, you know, that's great. But for those who are already facing years of physical therapy, being able to have an implant like this would be fantastic. And so the researchers are hoping um, that, and they're actually already working on additional electrode arrangements in order to make the device more universal. They also speculate about using imaging to personalize the electrode arrangements, which might give greater results. But again, the results they've already achieved are pretty amazing. I am very excited about this. Obviously it's not going to be off on offer tomorrow um and there's still probably a lot of development to go through but just the idea that they were able to walk is so amazing so so cool um so yeah definitely better <laughs> definitely a better story than anything related to coronavirus so I, as you know, I enjoy being able to bring you happy stories mostly. Uh, So I thought that given that we were talking about coronavirus and everything about coronavirus is kind of terrible. I was excited to find something that was so just unabashedly good (laughs) in the realm of medicine. All right. So now we are going to switch gears completely and we're going to get an Update on the asteroid samples brought back by Japan's Hayabusa 2, and they are coming from the asteroid Ryugu. Ryugu, I forget how it's pronounced. I'm sorry. A new study published in Science suggests that materials from both the surface and the subsurface of the asteroid are remarkably similar. This means that they are representative most likely of the whole of the asteroid. Planetary scientist Shogo Tachibana from the University of Tokyo and the lead author of the new paper told Gizmodo in an email that his team quote aim to determine the representativeness of the samples because if they represent the asteroid's surface, detailed analysis on Earth, Will lead to an understanding of the entire asteroid, even though they were gathered from limited areas on the asteroid. Amazingly, the entirety of the sample is just 5.5 grams. That's basically enough to fit into a teaspoon, but it could still tell us a wealth of information about this carbonaceous asteroid. It's actually about 50 times as much as the mission success was set for. So the minimum success rate was pegged at just 0.1 grams. So they did pretty fantastically, actually. And so asteroids like Ryugu are known as C type asteroids, they're dark and rocky objects consisting mainly of carbon with a bit of water that mainly formed in the outer reaches of the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. These sorts of asteroids date to the earliest days of the solar system, which is why we're interested in them. Researchers hope to quote, questions, hope to have questions regarding the origin of the earth's water and where the organic matter that forms life originally came from. Sorry, that was a little bit awkward. Uh, And to examine how the planets formed through the collision, destruction, and combination of planetesimals, which are thought to have been formed early in the solar system, according to JAXA, Japan's space agency. So, yeah, this is pretty cool. It's good to know things about the, you know, beginning of the solar system. So, yeah, very exciting. And so the surface materials were examined in May 2020 and were found to be more unique than originally predicted, meaning that the asteroid might be more dynamic than previously thought. The samples were opened in a clean room to prevent contamination. Like the previous sample, it contained millimeter-sized sand, near-centimeter-sized pebbles, and sub-millimeter-sized fine powder. We focused on comparisons between pebbles observed by the spacecraft and the returned samples to evaluate the representativeness of returned grains, rather from limited areas of the asteroid, Tachibana told me, told, sorry, Gizmodo. We found that the returned samples well represent Ryugu, surface particles, from a morphological point of view, And that there are characteristic flat and elongated particles on the asteroid, which are also present in the returned sample. So basically, it means that they are pretty certain that the samples that they've brought back are pretty much representative of the asteroid as a whole. And so that's pretty exciting. The work on these samples is just beginning. But again, we've already learned some really neat things, as noted in the paper's conclusion. The variations in physical properties among the pebbles and sand, which were not expected before spacecraft arrival at the asteroid, reflect the geological history of Ryugu. Further work will include chemical analysis and other tests to further understand the makeup of this ancient part of our solar system, which is super exciting. Um, yeah. I know it sounds kind of dorky, but, uh, I do love a good space, uh, science story. Um, and I think it's really cool that we can, I mean, this, this was just absolute breakthrough technology, uh, to actually go to an asteroid and take samples from it and be able to bring it back to earth and to now be studying them is just so cool. Um, especially something so far out. Um, the, uh, I was just, I think I talked about it. I talked about it recently about, you know, kind of trying to grasp the vastness of space and, um, you know, Mars, it seems like, well, it's the next planet over, but it is so far away from us that it is just It's really hard to uh, actually contemplate in your brain. Humans, again, our brains are not meant for this sort of thing. Um, And so just getting to Mars is so, such a long distance. Um, And of course, you all know, uh, if you're regular listeners, that I am not a big fan of the idea of uh, trying to colonize Mars. I think it's a bad idea. I think that we need to focus on fixing our own world rather than trying to ultimately terraform a dead world. Um, a world that doesn't have a, uh, electromagnetic, uh, shielding. It's just, it's just crazy. I, d- I just don't understand. Um, I'm, awesomely happy, just stupidly happy that we have a bunch of rovers on Mars exploring it. But those are, you know, robots. I think exploration with robots is a fantastic idea. And yes, I like saying it that way, but I'm just not sure about doing it in person. I'm not opposed to people going there for short periods, but I just don't think it's a good idea to try and colonize. Ugh, I'm not sure why, but my allergies are really bad today, so um I've had to sneeze a couple of times during this recording. I hope it's not uh too noticeable. <laughs> okay. So let us start with our final story tonight. We are once again going to be talking about material science, which apparently is A slightly new theme here. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it'll continue, Um, (laughs) but this sounded really neat. Um, And so this time, instead of being local, it's a little bit further afield. Researchers at the Department of Energy's Oak Ridge National Laboratory used a common household plastic and turned it into a reusable adhesive with a rare combination of strength and ductility. And just may be one of the toughest materials ever reported. The study in Science Advances Advances, describes the material which is able to adapt to bear heavy loads, tolerate extreme stress and heat, and to bond to various surfaces including glass, aluminum, and steel. Strong, tough adhesives are difficult to design because they need to incorporate hard and soft features that are not typically compatible, said O-R-N-L scientist and corresponding author Tominori Sato. The challenge has been to add the toughness you get in flexible materials without sacrificing strength. Our approach uses dynamic chemical bonds to develop a novel adhesive with remarkable properties not seen in current materials. The researchers used a commodity thermoplastic called polystyrene B, polyethylene cobutylene B polystyrene, or <laughs> Sebs. <laughs> SEBS, Um, And so this is apparently a rubbery polymer that was not engineered initially for tough adhesion, but is easily produced. Because SEBS is produced in large quantities for a variety of uses, including food containers, toys, and household items, it seemed like a good target for what the researchers are referring to as upcycling. Uh, a little bit different from... uh <laughs> From crafting upcycling. <laughs> this would obviously be an alternative to traditional recycling with a value added product, which would, of course, be economically viable, which is, as we know, a need in our capitalist society. Sorry, I'm really, uh, <laughs> really going hard on capitalism tonight. I feel uh, bad if you're uh, not as left wing as I am. I apologize. <laughs> The team modified SEBS's chemical structure with dynamic crosslinking to make it more robust. Crosslinking is used to create more stable properties in designing materials by connecting structures that are not normally compatible. In this case, they used boronic esters to couple SEBS's with silica nanoparticles of or SINP, a filler material used to strengthen polymers. And so basically what they were able to do was create a really impressive, uh, metamaterial. And so a thin square centimeter can hold roughly 300 pounds. In addition, shear tests showed that the force required to debond the material was huge. In fact, when using glass, the glass would fracture before the sample detached Finally, the material is thermally stable up to 400 degrees Fahrenheit. and Again, it's recyclable. It is rare for a high-performance adhesive to be removable, but ours is designed for reuse and recyclability. Uh, MD Anasur Rahman, uh, who worked with Sato in ORNL's Chemical Science Division, noted, it can be applied and detached with heat and pressure and reused several times. So this could be applicable in uh, aerospace, automotive, and construction adhesives. There are benefits to industry and the environment to save resources and reduce waste. By design, this adhesive allows you to make repairs or correct costly mistakes and can be reproduced for new uses in very challenging applications, Sato said. And so, of course, the team both plans to commercialize the product and are exploring ways to use dynamic cross-linking with other fillers to create more new adhesives with other different specific properties. Okay, that is all the time we have for tonight. Thank you for listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.